held to since its inception. And so let's understand that, that when men depart from that, that is a mark of a false teacher. Secondly, we saw that they create division. They're divisive men, and they create division within the church. And so the, these two marks are that they, that they uh, depart from apostolic doctrine, and they bring about division in the church. And as we mentioned, truth can divide. God's truth can divide. But these men have brought about division by false doctrine. And so there's their error. Now this morning we come to the motives. The motives of false teachers. The motives of false teachers. And this begins in verse 5. Notice verse 5 there. He, we ended with this phrase in verse, at the end of verse 5. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, financial gain. And there is the motive of the false teachers. Years ago, as I began, um, as I began what you might call my pastoral or theological education, I could remember uh, there on the campus of the university, the chairman of the religion department, and in fact, if I remember correctly, all the professors from that department were present, and they gathered all the men that were um, that had chosen a pastoral studies as their major. And so we were sitting in the chapel, and the chairman of the religion department began to speak about what it meant you were signing up for. That by choosing this major, they're assuming that you are pursuing pastoral ministry as a vocation, as a calling. And so he began to launch into this, this, this speech, this talk to all the freshmen starting out the year. And he uh, began to talk about, if you, if you do not desire a vocation where you're basically on call 24-7, and I remember he'd just keep going, change your major now. If, if you love money, and that was one of his things. If you love money, change your major now. And he'd say something like, they will receive you gladly over in the accounting, in the pre-med, over in the financial department. But change your major now. And he just kept going through point after point, reminding the men that some of you may believe that, that you're going to pastor the big First Baptist Church but that's probably not going to happen. There might be a few of you, but it probably will not. He began to explain that the average church has 80 people in it and so forth and began to describe the difficulties and the hardship. And he just kept saying, and if you do not desire that, change your major now. And he kept moving through. But one of them was, if you love money, change your major now. And I've remembered it to this day. Now, while ministers of the gospel are to be supported by the church, as we have seen in the previous chapter, in chapter 5, the ministry is not about financial gain. It is not about financial gain. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 2.17, in 2 Corinthians 2.17, For we are not 
as so many peddling the word of God. We're not peddling the word of God. We're not selling the word of God. And those that are, it is a mark of a false teacher. And as we go into this section, it makes you wonder as if, as if already in the early church there was some kind of name it and claim it, health and wealth gospel, because that's what this sounds like. But remember, not only in our time do we think about the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity movement, the false pastors and preachers in that movement, but even throughout the history of the church where there had been times with simonry, where we see that men are like Simon Magnus that want to buy the Holy Spirit, or others wanting to sell religious blessings and indulgences for money's sake. And we're seeing that the Scriptures forbid that. But we are coming to this now third mark of a false teacher. And that third mark is... If the false teachers deviate or depart from apostolic doctrine, and if another mark is they divide the church, the divisive, we see now thirdly, and this concerns the motives of false teacher, they are driven by a love of money. They are driven by a love of money. They depart from the truth. They divide the church and they're driven by the love of money. And that is the central motive of false teachers. And it's greed. It's greed. So verse 5. There in that second part of verse 5, we begin to see what I've called godliness and gain. Godliness and gain. Notice this. He first points out that the false teachers suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Financial gain. But he'll begin to contrast this with verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Now again, verse 5. Paul's statement here concerning the false teachers, he says that the false teachers, he's already said in verse 5 that there are men of corrupt minds and men who are destitute of the truth in verse 5. And now he's stating, suppose, they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. That is, these false teachers, they suppose or imagine that godliness, that growth in Christ-likeness, the ministry, the instruction of God's Word, growth in holiness and life and behavior is the avenue to financial or monetary increase. And that's not the case. Now, this reveals the heart of the matter concerning the false teachers, doesn't it? Just consider it in our, in our present setting. When you look around our nation, you look around the world, if you were to point out one key fundamental mark about false teachers and their motives and their lifestyle, it would be this, would it not? Remember, as we noticed last week, to depart from the truth, verse 5, leads to corruption of thinking and life. Do not forget, doctrine, 
What we believe affects how we live. It is the renewing of the mind with the truth of God. And that affects the way we live. Therefore, truth and ethics are intimately, intimately tied together. Right? And the false teachers are men that have departed from the truth of apostolic doctrine. They're men that divide the church. And now we see that there is an inward desire for money. You see, again, Paul is giving us identifiable marks and motives of false teachers. Identifiable marks and motives of false teachers. These are important. Early in this letter, the apostle gave us qualifications for church leadership. You remember that? In chapter 3, he wrote concerning elders and deacons. And concerning the elders or or overseers, he said in chapter 3, verse 3, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. And and, in chapter 3, verse 8, concerning the deacons, he says, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. You see, you see him contrasting with the qualifications of what true church leadership is to look like versus the false teachers. And now, in our present section, in the remaining verses, moving from verse 5, where he sees that they see this as a, as a means of gain, he now, in the remaining verses, 6 through 9, or 6 through 10, he would contrast, he would contrast true godliness true godliness, true Christ-likeness against the hypocritical godliness of the false teachers. He begins in verse 8 now. And watch this. Here we have godliness and contentment. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, Paul again is Echoing the words of verse 5, that is, that is of godliness and gain. However, this is not a false godliness. Verse 6 is not a false one. This is true godliness. This isn't like the false godliness of the false teachers in verse 5. Verse 6 is true godliness. And it leads to, notice his language, true or great gain. So, what kind of gain is Paul talking about now? If it's not financial or earthly gain, what is he talking about? Paul says, notice his words there in verse 6. It's godliness with what? With contentment. We're going to talk about contentment in a moment. But how is this godliness that he's talking about, how is it great gain? Well, this godliness, this gain, I mean, is great that he's talking about because it's not temporary. It's not setting its eyes on the temporal things of this passing world, the things that are passing away. This godliness is Great gain, true gain. Because it has set its attention on eternal riches. And this is the great treasure. 
Listen, this is the great treasure that the true leadership of the church is to set its affection and its mind and heart on. And that true treasure is Christ. Again, Calvin says this. Listen to this. Quote, But for our part, godliness is very great gain to us. Because by means of it, we obtain the benefit, not only of being heirs of the world, but likewise enjoying Christ and all His riches. End quote. He's echoing. Paul, Paul is here in these, this verse. He's echoing our Lord Jesus You remember what Jesus would say? Listen to him. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Do not lay up treasures on earth. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, verse 19. And if you move through that section, he'll say in verse 20, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, For where your treasure is, there it will be your heart also. We are to be, listen closely, we are to be good Christian capitalists. I stole that from uh, John Gerstner years ago. I heard him say that. We're to be good Christian capitalists. And you say, what do you mean by that? I mean that we are to be spiritual Warren Buffett's laboring, laboring to invest in eternal riches that are true gain, that are great gain. We are to be investing, that is, godliness that leads to heavenly returns that bring glory to our God. That is where our motives and our hearts are to be. Now notice verse 6 again. Notice that this is godliness with contentment. And Paul elaborates on what this means. This is the means, listen church, this is the means to true spiritual riches. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. And it's certain that we, we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Contentment contentment is fundamental to biblical godliness. Contentment is fundamental, vital to godliness, to sanctification, to growing in Christ-likeness. So what is contentment? Contentment is living by faith as a child of God, accepting, receiving, and resting upon our Father in heaven in every circumstance and being thankful and satisfied for every provision. 
Let me say that one more time. Contentment is living by faith as a child of God, accepting, receiving, and resting upon our Father in heaven and every circumstance and being thankful and satisfied for every provision. Notice, notice verse 7. Look at verse 7. He's, he, 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 he directs our attention and thoughts toward our birth, our coming into the world, and our departure, our death. But we brought nothing in this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. There's not a U-Haul truck following the hearse to the cemetery, is there? No. The psalmist would say in Psalm 144, verse 4, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And then Paul moves from there. Talking about how we came into the world and how we will leave this world, the brevity of life, how we brought nothing with us, how we'll take nothing with us. He, in verse 8, it's as if he condenses the teaching, the teaching of Jesus. In verse 8, everything that Jesus said in Matthew, 20, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6, verse 25 through 34, Paul seems to condense it right there in verse 8. And having food and clothing, we shall be content. You remember what Jesus taught in Matthew 6? Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it, is not life more than food and body more than clothing. And then he begins to talk about the birds of the air. He begins to talk about, if you remember, the, the lilies in the field and about Solomon and all of his glory was not arrayed as such. He'll eventually get to verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. There's a well-known book Concerning contentment, I'm sure many of you have read it. It's Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. His book, The Rare, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. This is how he defines contentment. Burroughs says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, Gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, let's move to verse 9. Now we move to greed and the lack of contentment. 
greed and a lack of contentment. So he talked about he he spoke about the godly heart, the the one who was pursuing the things of God. Is he was going back and forth and contrasting these things, but now. Notice what he says. It's as if he's now focusing in on these these false teachers and maybe many of their followers and maybe some of you here this morning. The greed and the lack of contentment. Look at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmless lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Now notice here, as he begins to contrast the godly in the previous verses with the false teachers. Verse 9, he begins with, but. It's not so with the ungodly. It's not so with the false teachers. And notice those two key descriptors of the false teachers. In verse 9, the heart is, they desire to be rich. Do you see that? Desire to be rich. In verse 10, we're moving in that direction. In verse 10, it is, they love what? They love money. They desire to be rich, and they have this love of money. Now, I may say something about these verses as we push into them. Paul is not condemning individuals who are rich. He's not. God provides in His providence. Some have much, some have little. He's not condemning money. No. What he is after is the heart. It's the consuming desire to be rich. It is the love of money that the apostle is teaching against. Again, listen to the words of Jesus. For where your treasure is, there your heart also, where your heart will be also. You see, Paul in verse 9 and 10 What he's really doing, he's highlighting the sin of idolatry, the second commandment, and the sin of covetousness, the tenth commandment. As Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. Now once we start down this path of these two things, of desiring to be rich and loving money, Paul wants us to understand that the result would lead to branches springing forth of all kinds of evil. All kinds of evil. Again, notice verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. There's a temptation and a trap. And into many foolish, foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. You see, you will fall into temptation. And after temptation, there'll be set before you these traps set by the devil and by your own fallen flesh. It leads to greed. It leads to, listen church, If this is where your heart's at, desiring riches and the love of money, it leads to never being satisfied with God's provision in your life or God's providence over your life. 
Individuals who run down this path fall into foolishness. We live in America. Just look around. We see the foolishness. Look in D.C., look in Hollywood. It's all around us, right? We see the foolishness of what riches can do. It leads to lustful behavior that will destroy you. And it will destroy you. Notice his language. Destruction and perdition. That maybe he's just heaping up words describing what it leads to. How you're drowned in destruction and perdition. Some believe that he's, he's using these two words to describe. It will bring destruction in this life and the life to come. And now verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and perceived or pierced, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. This verse is often misquoted and misunderstood. Again, Paul is not saying, notice closely what he's saying. He is not saying that money is the root of all kinds of evil. No. God provides money for us to use. It's a gift. He provides it as He sees fit to purchase the necessities of life. Money itself is amoral. Right? But notice He says it is the love of money. The love of money is the problem. And he doesn't say, notice number two, that the love of money is, he's not saying the love of money is, is, is not the root of all evil. No, though it says evil in your King James, it's actually in the plural. And some of your other translations pick it up. It's all kinds, all sorts of evil. Do you see that? Not every evil stems from the love of money. But all kinds, all sorts of evil stems from it. Again, it's in the plural. It's evils. From the love of money, all sorts of sin and evil spring forth. Just consider it. Theft, robbery, murder, bribes. And the list would be endless, wouldn't it? Again, the Bible teaches over and over. Let us never forget The heart of the matter is the what? The heart. Is the heart. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And through this sin, the loving of money, the result, the evidence of all kinds of evil are, notice verse 10 again, for which some have strayed from the faith, Apostasy. Apostasy. Strayed from the faith and their greediness. Greed. And pierced themselves through with many sorrows. In other words, it has led individuals departing from the faith. Apostasy. And multitudes. Various kinds of sorrows and grief. 
Now we've seen here as we've moved through this, the marks and the motives of false teachers. Again, let me set them forth. They depart or deviate from sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, apostolic doctrine. Two, you can identify them because they will divide the church. False teachers divide the church. Thirdly, they are driven. We see their motive. They are driven by a love of money. You see that? It's that simple. And so again, we have this closing exhortation of Paul to Christians. Don't be like the false teachers. Don't be like them. Hold firmly to the truth of the apostolic word. Walk in unity as God's people. And learn to be content. Flee from idolatry. Flee from covetousness. Learn to be content in God's providence and provision. Do you see that? Jerry Bridges, speaking of godliness and contentment, this is what he says here. Jerry Bridges says, quote, The godly person, the godly person, has found what the greedy or the envious or the discontented person always searches for but never finds. He has found, he has found satisfaction, he says, and rest for his soul. End quote. So this morning, some closing remarks and application. I want you to ask yourself this morning. Ask yourself, am I in fiery pursuit of the heavenly heavenly riches in Christ or the temporal passing pleasures of this world? Are you in the pursuit of God's kingdom, the riches that are found in Christ, Or do you find yourself, your drive, your heart, your fixation is on the passing pleasures of this world? You need to consider that. Now, watch this. Listen to Paul. In Philippians, concerning contentment, he says something interesting. He tells us that he himself, as an apostle, had to learn, learn contentment. He had to learn contentment. Remember, sanctification is a lifelong process. And he learned. Philippians 4.11. Listen to his language here. Now I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And so, if you find yourself as a believer in Christ, 
hoping, trusting, resting in Jesus Christ, and yet you find the fallenness of your heart and mind is tugging you toward the temporal riches of this world in the sense that it becomes a pursuit and a love. Now, begin in the process of sanctification, crucifying the flesh and learning to grow in contentment and God's provision and providence over your life. Again, now listen to Jeremiah Burroughs again. These are wonderful words. Here he is again. Burroughs says, My brethren, my brethren, the reason why you have not got contentment in the things of this world is not because you have not got enough of them. That is not the reason. But the reason is because they are not things proportionable to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. Many men think that they are troubled and have not got contentment. It is because they have but little in this world, and if they had more, they would be content. That is just as if a man, listen to this, that is like saying if a man were hungry and to satisfy his craving stomach, stomach he would gape and hold open his mouth and take in wind. And then should think that the reason he's not satisfied is because he's not, he's not got enough wind. No, he says, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to a craving stomach. And his point is this. You find yourself not content and you may provide, you're laboring to provide the riches of this world to try to feel your contentment and it never seems to happen. I read this week where Spurgeon made the statement. He said, if you, if you double, if you could double your, your, your objects that you own, you still would not be content. Because that which only feels that gaping hole in you, in your soul, is the triune God who's found in Christ Jesus. Only that will give you satisfaction. Listen, dear saints, Jesus Christ is the ultimate storehouse of heavenly treasures. The, the Apostle Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians 2 verse 2, he says, And attaining all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both and the Father and of Christ, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, Jerry Bridges would say, the godly person has found what the greedy or the envious or discontented person has always searched for, but never finds. He's found, again, satisfaction for his soul. Your ultimate place to find contentment in and for your soul is Christ Jesus our Lord. Flee to Him. Embrace Him by faith. Grow in the knowledge of Christ and the wisdom of Christ, the truth of Christ. And as you embrace Him by faith, grow in that godliness that leads to true contentment as you rest in everlasting and eternal things. Jesus said, and this is eternal life 
Here is the heavenly riches, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And here we find Him in the pages of Scripture. Here we find Him in the bread and the wine that we come to this morning. The Son of God who gave Himself for us. God in flesh, the incarnate Son, our Redeemer, our Savior, our God. Let us pray. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, Warrenton, Virginia. If you live in Northern Virginia, please join us for worship this Sunday. For more information, please visit us online at covenantrbc.org.